My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. This is a story that could be absolutely terrifying. An investigation is underway in Cambodia into the possibility of human transmission of H5N1, or the bird flu. It was sparked after an 11-year-old girl in that country died from the disease. Seals in Peru are being tested for bird flu, or H5N1, which is spreading through the region and taking with it hundreds of sea lions. Bird flu has killed more than 200 million birds across the globe since the beginning of 2021. The incoming chief scientist at the World Health Organization said governments should invest in vaccines for all strains of bird flu that exist in the animal kingdom as an insurance policy in case of an outbreak in humans. It also could not be terrible and devastating. We just don't know yet. But if you talk to the experts who study avian flu, they will point to a huge spike in cases in birds, transmission to mammals, some human cases, and even a rare human death. And the conclusions they draw from that is that something is changing. That doesn't mean we are headed for another pandemic, but it is a troubling sign. It's a blinking warning light. And by now, we should know how to handle blinking warning lights when it comes to infectious diseases with respiratory symptoms, right? I mean, if we haven't learned that lesson by now, it's just not one we're ever gonna learn. So what do we know about the massive rise in avian flu? What's changing about it? How concerned should global health officials be? And what should we be doing right now? You know, just to be safe and prepared. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Shayan Sharif is the acting dean of the Ontario Veterinary College and a professor at that college in the Department of Pathobiology. Hello, Dr. Sharif. Good morning. I have asked this question to a doctor before a year ago, but since some people might have been tuned out then and are much more tuned in now, I will start with it. What is avian flu and specifically what is H5N1? So avian influenza virus is a member of a very large family of influenza viruses, including uh, seasonal flu viruses and many other types of influenza viruses that don't necessarily infect birds. They can infect all different kinds of species like pigs, horses, dogs, cats, etc., etc., belong to this large family of influenza viruses. H5N1 is the so-called highly pathogenic avian influenza virus. And what we mean in my scientific lingo is that this virus has the capacity to cause mortality and also it has the capacity to cause severe disease in poultry. That's why it's called highly pathogenic avian influenza virus. So that's what an H5N1 virus is all about. 
how long has this particular virus been present in Canada, been infecting poultry and other animals? So this particular strain of H5N1 came to Canada almost 13, 14 months ago in December of 2021. But there are other H5N1 strains in Canada that have been present in Canada for many, many years. As a matter of fact, uh, many of these H5N1 viruses have been present in waterfowl in in migratory birds in Canada for many years, perhaps for decades. Uh, Usually we consider H5N1 pathogenic for poultry, but they're not pathogenic, meaning that they don't cause disease in migratory birds, most migratory birds and most waterfowl, like ducks and geese and so forth. So as a result of that, those migratory birds or waterfowl act as a reservoir for the virus. They catch the virus, but they don't show clinical signs and they just simply shed the virus into their environment. What is different, however, with this particular strain of virus that we've begun seeing it in December of 2021 is the fact that it can not only infect wild birds, it can sometimes kill them. And as a matter of fact, there are now a variety of species of birds that can succumb to disease caused by this highly pathogenic influenza virus. So far, we've mostly covered uh, similar territory as we did last year. But last year, when I discussed this, the primary concern was just a decimation of the poultry industry uh, in North America and elsewhere as a whole. You kind of touched on it a little bit there. What is the concern now? How has that changed over the past year? Uh, So a number of things have changed. First of all, now we have a much better understanding of the range of avian species that this virus can infect. Perhaps last year at this time, uh, we had a very limited understanding of the wide range of avian species that it can infect. And not only it can infect, but can also kill those avian species. So now we have a much better understanding that birds of prey could actually succumb to disease. Perhaps last year we had a limited understanding of that. So that's one component of that. The other component is that now we also have recorded a few cases of transmission of this virus from birds to to mammalian species, sometimes scavenging mammals like skunks and raccoons and so forth, and sometimes other uh, mammalian species like mink, like sea lion and seals, as an example. So that's also another component. Also last year, what we didn't know and we were hoping we would never encounter is the possibility of transmission to humans. At this moment, we do know that this virus could potentially jump to humans, but it doesn't do it very often, thankfully. On very, very rare occasions does it do that. But when it does do that, then it could potentially cause other complications and implications for human and public health. When we say that uh, it's rare that it jumps to humans, what kind of numbers are we talking about? And how do we know? And, you know, this is something uh, that I've said a few times. I've learned a lot more about infectious diseases the past couple of years than I ever have before. But how do we know if it is making the jump more often and we're just not testing for it, not seeing it, etc.? So that's a very good question, Jordan. Uh, The reality is that uh, we know what we know. We can't really know what we don't know. Meaning that if we are not testing, then obviously we are not going to be able to find the virus. So it is quite possible that we are just looking at the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg at the moment is only a handful of confirmed cases of H5N1 infection. But 
It doesn't mean that there's been no other transmission events happening between uh, birds and humans. I would imagine that there have been probably a lot more. I can't really say an order of magnitude more or maybe a few orders of magnitude more or perhaps less. I can't really say that. But I think it's quite likely that we've had a lot of exposures. Some of those exposures probably did not lead to an infection, meaning that the virus didn't get a chance to propagate, even though it was exposed to human tissue and human upper respiratory system and potentially could have infected those individuals. But probably for whatever reasons, it couldn't infect them. And then on top of that, it's possible that some of those individuals that became exposed to the virus contracted the virus but they didn't show any clinical signs and symptoms. As a result of that, they remained asymptomatic. Maybe some of them were in some remote areas of the globe. And as a result of that, they had no access to very sophisticated medical care. Even if you have access to sophisticated medical care, if you present with respiratory signs, would a doctor take a swab from your nasal cavity and send it for viral detection? I think we can all agree that it's probably not very likely unless you've been exposed to poultry and you tell that to the doctor that, hey, look, my my poultry contracted H5N1. And as a result of that, I might have actually been exposed to H5N1. I think it's pretty clear that many of our physicians probably wouldn't take the time to test for avian influenza virus. So I think there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of missing links here that lead me to believe that probably we are only looking at the tip of the iceberg. But like I said, at the moment, the tip of the iceberg is composed of, I would say, a handful of cases, confirmed cases. What does that kind of transmission, as well as the transmission uh, that we just sort of mentioned between animals, tell us about this virus and how it's changing? We've learned a lot about this, obviously, from COVID and different strains. Is that What's going on here? It, it is precisely what is going on here because, you know, first of all, this virus, if you go back to the original virus, the ancestral virus, the ancestral virus had infectivity for birds, for avian species, and it became adapted to avian species so much so that it was quite successful in spreading, transmitting, and infecting birds all different kinds of birds. It may or may not cause disease in those birds, the ancestral virus. This one, however, has kept its transmissibility and infectivity, so it can infect a lot of birds. But it seems that it's also gained some virulence in terms of killing some of those bird species. But maybe those bird species that are succumbing to disease are the ones that are becoming newly infected. Maybe, you know, the reservoirs, the traditional reservoirs are somewhat resistant to to this virus. So that's one component of it. The other component is that when this virus started adapting itself to mammals, and when that does happen, it tells us that the virus has probably mutated. And also one thing that is really critical to understand for influenza viruses is that they can not only undergo mutations, meaning that they would do mutations at one or two of their nucleic acids that they require for assembly of their genome, they can also swap their genome with other viruses, meaning that if you have two viruses, they can actually exchange their genetic material. So as a result of that, you could all of a sudden have a completely new virus because the the progeny of two viruses that have exchanged their genetic material has some resemblance to its parental viruses. So this virus seems to be actually doing probably some of those as, as it goes along. 
And the more it has the opportunity to exchange its genetic material and create mutations, it has the capacity to adapt itself better to its hosts, whatever those hosts are, either avian or mammals. Our concern is that this virus at some point of time may have the capacity to jump from avian to mammals and then perhaps from mammals to humans and then be transmitted from humans to humans. If that does happen, we could be looking at yet another pandemic and who really needs to have another pandemic. And by the way, COVID-19 pandemic hasn't really ended officially. We are still hopefully not in the middle of a pandemic, but maybe towards the tail end of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's what the main concern is at the moment. You know that's terrifying, right? I do. Just to listen to that that description of how it, the steps that need to happen. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Jordan. It is very terrifying. And if you ask me what keeps me up at night, there are a lot of things, but this is definitely one of the one of the big ones. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Where are we now in that process, and what do we know about how this is transmitted? I know that one of the reasons COVID became a pandemic and became so deadly is because it was very infectious and easily transmissible uh, through aerosol. How are humans catching this? Is it, you know, really close, direct contact with infected birds? Like, what's the what's the rate of transmission, I guess? So you're asking a, a very good question that, that probably we can't really answer it very clearly. I can give you a, an answer, but you know it's primarily based on epidemiological data and not so much based on laboratory evidence. Based on epidemiological data, when you look at poultry barns that have become infected, you could make some connections with migratory birds. And when you think about migratory birds and how they operate and how they behave, it's quite possible that they're contaminating areas in close proximity of those poultry barns. And then potentially viruses get aerosolized. How do they get aerosolized? I can't really tell you. There are a number of hypotheses that we can put forward. And as a matter of fact, my lab is looking at some of those hypotheses to determine what is the contribution of, for example, touching, contacting, you know, some surfaces. And because of those contacts, then poultry could catch the virus? Or is it possible that large droplets play a significant role? And I'm sure that you remember all the debates we had about um, surfaces versus or fomites, yep. meaning you know those surfaces or inanimate objects that could be contaminated and uh, and humans in the context of COVID you know, could touch them and then put their finger in their mouth or touch their, their nose or touch their eyes and then get infected with COVID-19. Totally. That exists for influenza viruses. But what is the relative contribution of that compared to large droplets or aerosolized uh, materials? We, we have very limited understanding of that. But based on what I'm gathering from the literature and from epidemiological data, it appears to me that aerosols and droplets play a significant role. Probably aerosols would play a very important role in transmission of the virus, which would 
in my opinion, would make it even more concerning because when you have aerosols, very tiny droplets that can travel long distances, then it would make the process for control of transmission quite difficult. In some cases, even impossible to control the virus. So overall, we can't really rule anything out in the process of transmission. Okay, so you're concerned and your concern has me concerned. What about the global health authorities that, you know, we sort of looked to at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic for guidance? What are they saying and what could we be doing right now to prepare for, you know, God knows what happens next. Hopefully not much, but, you know, what should we be doing? Yeah, and, and what I said about, you know, the potential pandemic, I'm really, really, really hopeful that it would never happen. So th- this is the least thing, you know, that any of us would want to see happen because this virus is a highly pathogenic virus. And if it does cause disease in humans, unfortunately, this virus, if it does become pathogenic for humans, and if it's transmissible to humans, could actually have a fatality rate of far greater than what we've seen for, for COVID-19. Probably it would resemble what we saw for the Spanish flu. It, it killed approximately 50 to 100 million people in 1918. Our concern is that this virus could actually be something similar to that. And I think it has some of the capacities and potentials of what we saw in the, in the 1918 pandemic. So what are the global health authorities doing at the moment? At the moment, they're looking at all different options, both for animal health and also mostly, mostly for human health, which includes surveillance, which includes uh, vaccination. And I think we have to not begin looking at it. We should have begun looking at vaccination probably months ago, but it's still not too late to do that. Doing it now, it's much better than doing it, let's say, two months from today or three months from today. We have to get moving as quickly as possible, looking at all of our options for, you know, the, maybe you know, the unlikely scenario that there is going to be a pandemic. Do we have vaccines right now for this kind of virus? And I mean, shouldn't we? We just mentioned that it's been here for more than a decade. So we do actually have vaccines for for poultry. But the problem is that those vaccines are not good enough for this particular strain. So there is a bit of a mismatch between what those vaccines can protect against and this particular virus. So there is very limited amount of efficacy. For humans, there are actually some vaccines for humans, I would say at the experimental level and perhaps for very targeted use in humans. But what we also discovered in the context of COVID-19 was that we needed to have surge capacity. And then I'm sure that you remember and the audience would remember all the bickering that we had over countries putting embargo on vaccines produced in their countries because they said, you know, why do we have to ship vaccines to other countries while, you know, our citizens are dying of COVID-19? Right. I don't really think that we are going to be going into any uncharted territory in that sense. So we've been there, done that, and we know how to increase our capacity for vaccine production. I would really think that, you know, this is a call for action for all governments, including the Canadian government, to think very carefully about not only finding a good vaccine, but actually how to produce the vaccine at the level required by the nation and how to distribute it. We've covered a lot of the potential worst case scenario here already. What's the best case scenario? And how far are we away from that right now? You know, we've talked about how bad this could get and how this virus could change. What's the likelihood that it just doesn't and we end up with, you know, 
human cases here and there like we are seeing? Right. And as a matter of fact, if you go back 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago, in the 90s, in 97, the ancestral virus of H5N1 emerged in, in China. And uh, from 97 to 2003, 2004, it killed quite a few people, but most of those individuals were becoming, I would call them terminal hosts, meaning that they would catch the virus. Unfortunately, many of them died, but many of them also survived. Fatality rate was approximately 50%. But when you look at mortality at that time, it was around 450-ish in total of uh, individuals that contracted H5N1 and died all around the globe. Only 900 confirmed cases, which is almost nothing compared to what we saw for COVID-19. So there is that, that history that this virus could actually go in a different direction. And it could actually become maybe a little bit uh, less pathogenic, less virulent. And as a result of that, it could become what we call endemic, meaning that it's just going around in the same region or many regions of the world, but it wouldn't really cause any disease. However, there's a big difference between COVID-19 virus and avian influenza virus or influenza viruses. Like I said, they undergo mutation, but they can also make some drastic changes in their genome. So that's why we need to really keep an eye out on, on any emergence of novel viruses, novel and new viruses in the same family of influenza viruses. One last quick question. What would you say to somebody who's listened to this interview and is anxious or freaked out? I would say first and foremost, this is not time to panic. Uh, this is not time to freak out. I think this is really time for us globally to take action. We cannot afford doing nothing the same way that we did for COVID-19 for months on end, and we pretended that nothing is happening around us. And look what happened. It really caught us off guard. If there was a silver lining in the pandemic, was the fact that we learned a lot of hard lessons. This is really truly the time for us to get ready for maybe the unlikely event of a yet another pandemic. It's definitely in the cards. And I think, you know, this virus, has served us notice that it is changing and we have to get adapted to the virus because this virus, you know, has no mercy. It could actually change overnight or it change overnight, meaning it could become endemic, lose its pathogenicity, or it could actually become more pathogenic. We can't really rely on the virus. We have to rely on ourselves and our systems, including our scientific systems and our government systems to protect us in the future. Well, I hope we've learned a few lessons anyway. Dr. Sharif, thank you so much for this. I'm going to try to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. By all means, me too. Dr. Cheyenne Sharif, Acting Dean of the Ontario Veterinary College. That was not an episode I wanted to bring you, but it's one of those times when if you see something, you should say something. Let's not panic. Let's be prepared. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you want to talk to us, email hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Follow us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn and call us. Leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. You can find this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. I've told you this before, but if you got a smart speaker, try it. Ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.
My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.